1: Hello everyone, and welcome to the Mariner's Mirror podcast. This episode continues our series on iconic ships, in which we ask a historian to explain why their chosen ship might be iconic, or the curator of an historic ship. We ask them to explain why their surviving ship deserves the title iconic. And this week we're on episode nine of this mini-series. Last week we heard about the SS Great Britain, the magnificent passenger steamship designed by Isambard Kingdom Brunel in the 1840s. A ship which changed global shipping and which set a foundation stone for extraordinary leaps in technological and design innovation. Leading up to the ship we are covering today, the RMS Mauritania. Launched in 1906, just 61 years after the SS Great Britain, the Mauritania turned everything on its head all over again. Just like the SS Great Britain, she was the largest ship in the world at the time of her launch. But she was two and a half times longer than the SS Great Britain. That's a staggering jump in terms of ship design. And at just under 45,000 tonnes, she was 15 times larger in terms of displacement. And so to find out more about how the fascinating history of giant passenger liners took a giant leap forward in 1906, I spoke with Max Wilson, archivist at the Lloyds Register Foundation, and we met up in the Lloyds Archives, temporarily located in Cannon House in the Royal Arsenal in Woolwich. The Lloyd's archives are the best place to explore the history of so many ships, but particularly something as groundbreaking as the Mauritania, because Lloyd's were responsible for certifying the safety of the vessel. This means that there is a whole host of magnificent material to see there, letters, record books, ship plans, technical drawings, and they reveal the ship and the achievements of her designers and builders in the most wonderful detail. If your interest is piqued by the sound of the documents we discuss, don't fret because with you in mind, we filmed the interview and also those documents. You can find that film on the Mariner's Mirror podcast YouTube channel and on the Society for Nautical Research's Facebook page. So do enjoy. It really is a wonderful little glimpse into a splendid little archive. Max, let's start by talking about this amazing building we're in. Where are we? What's going on? Uh, so you're in our, basically our temporary archive store um, while we're in the middle of our
0: office refurbishment and uh, this is the Cannon House. It uh, originally would have been an artillery uh, factory providing um, armaments to the Army and the Navy uh, from about the 1850s onwards.
1: But now it's just full of your wonderful old, yeah. old
0: registers and material. <laughs> yeah, now it's just yeah, archives and, uh, and library materials and
1: yeah Interesting. Good stuff. Well, I got in touch because we're doing this series of iconic ships and and I said, I bet you've got some good iconic ships, records of iconic ships in the Lloyd's Register archives, and you certainly do. Um, But one of them you pulled out and you said, I know what, let's talk about the Mauritania. So what was it about the Mauritania that made you think, oh, I know what, let's do this one? Um, Well, she's she's just a British icon, really. She's just uh, an amazing, an
0: amazing example of luxury, the height of Uh, luxury travel um, you know at uh, you know a really pivotal time in history she's that she kind of dominated you know for a very very admittedly a very brief period she was the world's largest ship the world's largest moving structure Um, she uh, held the very fastest record the fastest average speeds crossing the atlantic for about 20 years longer than 20 years yes it's um you know and she was just yeah as i say just really she came to define um luxury really franklin uh, delano roosevelt uh, when she was eventually broken up, um, sent a letter of protest, uh, <laughs> and he famously hated uh, sea travel. Really, um, and he absolutely fell in love with Mauritania. Wow,
1: what was it about the ship then? Why, why was it so? Was it just so unusually, <laughs> unusually lovely?
0: Yeah, he. Well, I mean, as I say, he he hated uh, sea travel, and he he described her as having a soul you could talk to, oh. uh, which is uh, interesting. Um, but uh, she she was a very, a very opulent ship, uh, opulent on, I think, a, a completely different scale to all of our predecessors. Um, you know, we know things like uh, the staterooms in the very first class, um, uh, you know, in the first class areas, they were made with things like, uh, I think it was 28 different types of exotic wood. Uh, wow. For example, were used, um, you know, and she had things like, uh, you know, a, a sort of an, an open veranda cafe that was modelled on the orangery and Hampton Court Palace and, um, you know, other lots and lots of interesting things like that and Turkish baths and swimming pools and other kinds of interesting
1: What's interesting happened to pieces. the times we live in? Can you name 28 different types of
0: exotic wood? I can't, no, but not, no. yeah, not personally. Mahogany? <laughs> Mahogany, oak, uh, elm. Yeah.
1: I'm not sure. Well, I thought you should, someone should do some research and find out what those 28 different types of uh, exotic wood were on the Mauritania. Um, it's really interesting, isn't it, where you get to a period in the development of ships and shipping where extreme attention to detail and luxury almost seems taken for granted, certainly by the Mm. time they're building Titanic and Olympic. But I think it really was with the Mauritania, it it all, from Brunel onwards, it suddenly kind of, it settled in the Mauritania. And um, what's fantastic about the Lloyd's Register archives is you've got loads of um, written material relating to the Mauritania. So what did you manage to find?
0: Well, uh, I suppose yeah. The very first document um, that really leapt out at me um, does cause a bit of a problem for the interview. <laughs> um, it does slightly, yeah. Uh, so really, uh, in in actuality, I shouldn't really be showing you any records for Mauritania. Um, we have a memo from uh, 1904 uh, during the very kind of early design phases of Mauritania and Lusitania, from our chief Harry John Cornish, basically instructing all Lloyd's Register surveyors and clerical staff not to divulge any details uh, on any. Uh, you know, in any circumstances of Mauritania's construction. Wow. Um, so yeah, it was top secret. Yes, yeah. They, um, the Cunard line, um, you know, that had commissioned Mauritania and Lusitania, were they, they had a real bee in their bonnet about um, you know, trying to protect these designs from industrial espionage. I suppose, really, to try and maximise the impact that they would have when they finally took to the seas. Uh, yeah. and they didn't want anything to. You know, to get out to the media or the press.
1: It sounds like a balance between concern of other people stealing their ideas, but also wanting it to be uh, like what we'd see as a press release now where everything can be shut down. No one wants to tell anyone about the details of what's yeah, coming.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was a huge amount of money. Um, I mean, Mauritania and Lusitania were built um, pretty much with government funding. Um, How did so, that work? So it was... It was Really, I suppose uh, the, the British government loaned the Cunard line, uh, the, well, two, £2.6 million pounds in the very early start of uh, the 20th century. Uh, so that would be about 200 to £250 million pounds in today's money. Wow. And they gave her a very, very low interest rate of about 2.57%. Um, uh, and uh, the idea was that, you know, she would have to pay this over 20 years. So really, she got a very good deal, and the British government were very invested in making sure that Mauritania was built. Um, in part, really, to try and uh, really sort of secure the Cunard line, and also secure this uh, idea of British engineering as being the best in the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was only one caveat um, to the loan, and that was that uh, she had to be able to uh, to offer her services in the event of a war uh-huh. as an armed merchant cruiser.
1: So, what year are we talking about here? This was in uh,
0: about 1903. Right. Um, so interesting that they were already putting themselves um, on, well Britain was already starting to put itself on a war footing at this stage. And some of that's already visible within her design as well.
1: Really? Like what?
0: Um, so her boilers for example, um, she, she had a slight break with other liners um, and she, her boilers were in the very middle of the ship um, with two very long 350 foot uh, coal bunkers either side. Uh, and apparently, supposedly, this was a deliberate decision in order to protect the boilers and the furnaces from uh, the worst effects of artillery fire in the event that she got caught up in a in a in a in a sort of a, a, a skirmish or a flurry of
1: activity on the on the sea. It's fascinating this idea that the government are, are anticipating a war, isn't it? And, and are so mm. conscious of of the the pressure that's going to come on merchant shipping.
0: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, and as I say, you know, the, these these designs start to reflect that, and it, it's very interesting that that particular caveat was put in with with regard to her loan. Um, you know, and, and I think, you know, luckily she never she was never used as an armed merchant cruiser. Ironically, because uh, at the outbreak of the war, uh, she very quickly made a dash for Halifax, Nova Scotia, uh, and uh, you know where she was awaiting instructions from the British government to be converted Uh, and they actually turned around and said no she's far too big and her fuel consumption is far too large so you know she actually then said you can go back to to civilian service and she very briefly did but of course very few people were willing to travel across the atlantic during the first world war and so she spent the next nine months um you know sort of essentially in dock uh, in liverpool Uh, and then she really then started to be used as things like uh, troop ships to the dardanelles for the gallipoli campaign and um, and then as a hospital ship later on, and then later as a troop ship again. Uh, I wonder
1: who got the first class cabins on the exactly, way to the hills. Come on, <laughs> for the last ever trip. Yeah. yeah. You know, in terms of records, have you got certificates and uh, entries in the register book for her?
0: Yes, yeah. So we have uh, 341 records for specific archive documents for Mauritania. Wow. Um, that's just Mauritania. We also obviously classed the Lusitania as well, uh, who's nearly identical um, uh, to Mauritania. Uh, I think Mauritania is five feet longer, um, and uh, but yeah, in terms of in terms of what we have for Mauritania, yeah, it's it's reports of survey, uh, including her first entry report, which is kind of I suppose her sort of birth certificate, right. the very first time she formally enters uh, our records. Um, we have all of the kind of um, uh, correspondence that goes back and forth between Lloyd's Register and the you know, the committee that's that's deliberating on all of the designs.
1: It's wonderful that moment when someone would have written a kind of Mauritania for the very first time yeah. on an official document. Yeah. it's you know it is yeah. alive.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. It's really interesting. You know, and of course there's lots of back and forth about certain designs and things like that, and the machinery. The machinery itself was very um, you know cutting edge, and I think there was there was a lot of back and forth about whether or not it was possible in such a large ship and. Um, yeah so yeah in addition to that yeah it's lots of certificates as you say and obviously we have our register of ships which includes lots of references to Mauritania each year throughout her life until she's finally broken up in 1935.
1: And what does it say about the ship? Is it simple information? If you've ever seen any of the survey reports
0: that we have they have all of the information related to a ship's kind of uh, ownership and build right at the very top almost as you know and it's this information which goes into the register book entry so it's Everything to do with uh, the name, the ship's master, uh, or the captain, um, the the tonnage, the the length, um, you know, obviously the classification within the middle uh, that she receives, uh, as well as where she's built, who built her, who built the engines, what kind of engines she's got. So, actually, really, in what is about probably maybe half an inch worth of printing space, um, that information is all there, just on a line in the register book. Um, yeah. So you can find everything you need.
1: And what about technical drawings? I mean, these are all the things that we need to be able to work out whether Mauritania is really deserving of, of the name Iconic. Well, technical drawings, yeah. So we, so we have a lot of different types of technical drawings and
0: plans. Um, you know, things of like boiler plans, engine plans, shafting plans, pumping arrangements, things like that. Um, but I think in terms of her machinery itself, I think, um, you know, her boilers, I mentioned before, they're incredibly, uh, you know, they're really interesting. Um, and uh, interesting, we have a record within the archive, uh, which is a celebration um, really of, us, of uh, the the jubilee of the Wall's End Slipway and Engineering Company, which was the company which secured all of the contracts to to, to create um, uh, Mauritania's machinery and engines mm-hmm. and boilers. And one of the things that they boast about is the fact that they actually their boiler making department, which was a huge warehouse building in Newcastle, uh, it basically had to completely well, it needs to be extended just for Mauritania's boilers, uh, and they had to fit new types of you know, hydraulic uh, winching gear and cranes um, with you know, lifting capacities of up to about 100 tonnes. Yeah. Um, so they're really huge, huge boilers, you know, nothing like it before.
1: It's what, it's, it's a-
0: Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewellery from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to
1: dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns.
0: Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's
1: BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. Theme that happens again and again in the history of shipbuilding where someone says oh well, let's build a bigger ship and then all the people who have to do it go well we can't we, yeah. we don't know our cranes are not big enough our <laughs> warehouses are not big enough our slipways are not big enough we can't do it yeah so they have to kind of go back three or four stages so um you know she's changing the whole nature of shipbuilding um, mm. in, in her own presence isn't
0: she? Ab- absolutely it's um you know and i think one of the you know it's it's i think it's fair to say that the cunard line had a huge uh, vendetta, really, to to try and you know, really put Mauritania on the very top in terms of being the largest ship in the world, but also being the fastest. Um, you know, they'd uh, you know it really sort of stuck in their craw that um, you know that uh, uh, Norddeutscher Lloyd, another rival German shipping line, um, their ship Kaiser Wilhelm de Gross uh, was launched in uh, 1897, and then in 1898 she took. The blue ribbon to the fastest Atlantic crossing record <laughs> from Cunard's uh, Lucania uh, and yeah this is so this is something that they, they I think they were they were particularly eager to try and get back and they as a result of this this is what pushed them to uh, to exploring the idea of uh, sort of direct action steam turbine machinery and Mauritania was the very first transatlantic Express liner to use this type of
1: technology ah I like the idea of this British the German imperial <laughs> competition before mm. the war, a, as experienced in a battle between mm. between liners, and then how, how quickly was it before people realised just how quick Mauritania was going to be? Well, I think it's um, it, it's very interesting. They kept their speed
0: trials very very secret as well. Um, so Lloyd's oh. Register was was there present at the, the speed trials, um, and interestingly, they they refused to uh, you know to send back any information by wire. And so they, this, the times that they documented on board uh, were sent back and forth via carrier pigeon. Really? Um, yeah, because they, they, they could not afford for it to be intercepted uh, by anybody else. And so, really, I think it was, it was actually very, very quickly that this this, this steam turbine technology was, was seen to be something that was, that was actually going to change shipping forever. Um, yeah, this, was, this was a process that had been uh, designed by Charles Algernon Parsons um, and demonstrated at the Spithead Naval Review in 1897, where his little private yacht, Turbinia, um, was basically zigzagging around uh, all of the largest uh, and fastest ships of the Royal Navy and completely outran them. Um, so, Mauritania, uh, and interestingly, Turbinia was actually present on her very on, at her launch um, to sail, to, well, to steam alongside her. That's As lovely. Really, yeah, yeah, so it's, it's a really interesting one. She was the very largest
1: application of of this technology at that point. And her engines were only part of this, such an important story. And, and I, if you look at the plans of Mauritania, you realize how much is involved in one of these ships, how, how, many, how multi-layered they are. Yeah,
0: absolutely. I mean, it's, it's really, really fascinating. Um, Rudyard Kipling um, wrote about Mauritania. He actually penned a, a poem called Secrets of the Machines uh, and referred to her as the nine-decked uh, monster city, uh, which was, yeah, they huge, huge ships. Um, you know, we have a, a particularly interesting um, set of plans. You know, lots of very, very long plans which give full details of all the decks. Um, you know, everything, you know, all to the arrangement of where the piano is in the in the first class saloon, to where all of the stools are in the bar, and all of this sort of stuff. Um, you know, but we we've also got this amazing sort of general arrangement plan which has an overview of all of these decks, um, one over the top, and then the profile right at the very top. Um, you know showing her in steam uh, and it's um yeah she's an absolutely monstrous monstrous ship um, you know it would have been quite amazing to have seen and about fifty thousand people came out to see Mauritania because it was as 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 uh, as much as they were trying to keep her secret, it's very difficult to keep a ship like Mauritania secret forever.
1: Yeah, especially when you can say this is the, the largest ship <laughs> any of you will have ever seen before. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, so it's yeah, it's yeah.
0: She was definitely definitely a, a technical and engineering first.
1: And if also, if you assume it's a it's a period before Instagram, right? Yeah. So you know, yeah. now you'd be able to kind of go and have a look around mm. without actually going on board. But it must have been such a treasure. For those few who were allowed on in those early years.
0: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, by by even by the very end of of her life, um, you know, she was she was captain for most of her life by um, Captain Rostron and she, she gained the nickname the Rostron Express. Um, you know, Rostron obviously more famous for, um, uh, you know, sort of gained uh, international fame as a result of being the captain of the Carpathia, um, the ship that had uh, come to the rescue of all of the Titanic survivors. Um, and then so he was he was the captain from uh, about 1915 to 1916. And then again, I think from about 1919 till 1928. Um, Interesting bloke. We should, very... we should get him on the podcast. Yes. And we, <laughs> and we have those records in the archive as well
1: for the Carpathia. So, yeah, we're, yeah, we're very lucky. Well, we might come back and do the Carpathia at some point. He's, <laughs> yeah. He sounds fascinating. But, uh, um, yeah. And I love the little booklet showing the, um, all, all of the kind of the technical aspects of the, of the Mauritania. Tell me about that. Yes, that's um, yeah. That's that's. I think it's possibly one of my favourite
0: items for Mauritania. Um, so it's a fourteen-page booklet, and it's a celebration, I suppose, of, of her electrical equipment and the machinery on board, specifically. Um, and it goes into a great deal of detail about things like the switchboards, um, you know, the distribution
1: boards, the telephone exchanges. They all look like um, they've been invented by a mad scientist. They do. Now, I, wonder if they, I wonder if that's what they looked like at the time. <laughs> Everyone's like, well, that's crazy. That's clearly not going to work or whether it was kind well, of normal.
0: It's, I mean, they make a very big deal out of the fact that they use something called a, mag- a magneto system, um, which operates with a, ma- a master clock. And there were about 48 clocks all throughout the ship, um, all all being you know, all, all, all at the same time. Uh, and, and all to the same, the same precision. Um, you know and that 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 seems to be something that they were very proud wow. of. that's
1: impressive, um, isn't it?
0: Also, things like an you know, electrically powered dishwasher. They've got a very, a very great picture
1: of uh, the electrically powered dishwasher, which was you know really like state of the art stuff. It's like um, the people in charge of building the ship? They knew they were innovating with the overall construction, but they weren't going to let it stop there. Everyone was told to innovate, innovate, innovate. Everything's got to be new and yeah. crazy.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. I think, you know, I mean, you know, the, all of the, the first class spaces, they they were so incredibly opulent, and they were, you know, really, you know, by, by today's standards, it's unthinkable, but they were using, they they had strict instructions, the designer, um, uh, Harold Pito uh, he came up with uh, a design that all of Mauritania's interiors needed to be uh, to Francis the first style, which is from about the 15th to the 17th centuries, so... You know, it, this is this technical innovation, um, you know, this huge, huge technical innovation that people would have boarded on. But then they would have sat, found themselves sitting in something that looks like Hampton Court Palace or looks like, uh, you know, Versailles. Of, yeah, <laughs> Versailles. Yeah, it's fantastic.
1: Yeah. yeah. Interesting awareness of history. I wonder why they chose that. Who knows? Very strange. Yeah, it might yeah. have been a personal choice or maybe that was their perception of what the ultimate luxury would be. Yeah, quite possibly, quite possibly. Mm. Um, and there's, uh, you also showed me the wonderful drawing, so simple of the design of the hull of Mauritania, showing how, how she sits uh, on the crest of a wave. I love that, it looked, I don't know, maybe kind of 40 years ahead of her time. I know what you mean. Yeah, it's a sort of like a kind of a line drawing, I suppose, of
0: Mauritania's kind of shape with this sort of inky watercolor blue wave. Yeah, um, you know, sort of. It's like it's been done it. by
1: a Swedish architect <laughs> in the seventies. <'70s. laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah.
0: And it's um, yeah, it's a really it's a really interesting one. They were they were really worried um, that with this technology and with a ship of her size, that there would be an issue with how she would sit and ride the waves. Um, uh, you know, as she was crossing the Atlantic. And so, um, you know, interestingly, you know, people, you know, this machinery never having been used on this in this scale uh, before um, people throughout her life always complained about things like the vibrations of her engines and things like that, uh, which was something that plagued her throughout her life. Okay. Um, but, uh, you know, but despite that, you know, even with things like the Olympic class liners, um, you know, which used a very different a reciprocating engine, um, which, you know, allowed, you know, they, they Mauritania still retained all of these records. Uh, despite not you know having been surpassed in size and uh, you know and other forms of technology, she keeps
1: that speed record for like 20 yeah absolutely years,
0: so. yeah yeah for twenty years until and uh, you know they were so desperate to hold on to it that by by about uh, nineteen twenty nine when uh, a ship uh, another Norddeutscher Lloyd line ship uh, called the Bremen breaks the record um, actually really only by a fraction only by a, re- a real fraction um, Mauritania's captain asks permission for the Mauritania line to do for her to go into dock, um, have her machines and engineering, her machinery and her engines and boilers recalibrated, and then to have another crack at uh, regaining this this record, uh, which unfortunately she fails. She breaks, she breaks her previous, all of her previous records on this time. but sadly, she um, yeah she she falls short by really a fraction.
1: Do you think that's about having a place in history, wanting to, to to break that record, or is it is it more simply about people will want to come on board us if we're the fastest? I don't know. I think it's is it hard-nosed commercialism, <laughs> or, or you know. I think I think that there's definitely uh you know there's, there's there's
0: definitely a prestige element I think um you know the Cunard line um you know they they they're able to put it on all of their their posters that they have the you know the, the blue ribbon holder the fastest one of the fastest liners in the world um you know and and that that's an interesting uh, selling point I suppose for Cunard um, but also you've got the masters themselves and the crew they take a great deal of pride in being um a part of creating that record I suppose as well so you do find that the, the ship's masters are also quite instrumental in, in really pushing to, to you know to try and regain these records or for go to go for these records because
1: it is just a matter of of uh, a great source of pride. And finally, let's just talk about safety at sea. I mean, do we looking back on Mauritania now is she seen as being a good design, a safe design? I'm just thinking about obviously what happened to Titanic. No, mm. not, not long mm. afterwards. Yeah, she's. Um, I mean, I think I think obviously Titanic changed.
0: Changed shipping safety, um, you know. Afterwards, um, you know, when, when she sank, uh, Mauritania was actually in uh, Queenstown, uh, modern-day um, Cove, in uh, the Republic of Ireland, um, and she was going to be carrying some of her mail as well for Titanic. When they heard the news that she had been lost, um, but I think you know, after uh, in, with the with, with the border trade inquiry um, that occurred after the loss. Um, you know I think it's fair to say that I think that the issue a lot of people always made a very big big issue of the the number of lifeboats this was I think sadly uh, something that was that was industry-wide as a problem and immediately after that happened um, you know both the Lusitania and the Mauritania were fitted with um, even more like clinker-built lifeboats. Yeah, proper lifeboats. Um, you know, and in 1912 as well, they, uh, it's decided that actually they need wireless technology uh, on all of their ships yeah. uh, You know, in the event that anything like this ever happens again.
1: So in some respects she's a ship that's way ahead of her time with all of these new inventions. In other respects, the Mauritania is one. It's very much of her time with too few lifeboats and quite rattly. <laughs> yeah, I think so.
0: You know, it's it's an interesting it's an interesting kind of juxtaposition and, you know, um, you know, that, that particular booklet that we you know that we referred to earlier, which goes into all of the electrical installation on board Mauritania, um, you know, they they're very proud of some of the safety safety mechanisms even with regards to all of the electrical equipment, you know, the fail safes and the fuse boxes and things like that. Um, you know, but they've also got things like electrically powered boat winches and things like that for lowering the lifeboats down and Um, All of these things were, you know, obviously state-of-the-art, but were intended to try and, you know, with the best will in the world, to to, to make things safer, um, ultimately. But, uh, yeah, I think there were still fundamental things that needed to be done anyway, regardless, across the industry. Yeah, well, fascinating stuff. Thank
1: you so much for talking to me, Max. No, my pleasure. Very many thanks for listening. Please make sure you go back and listen to all of our previous Iconic Ships episodes. There's lots of wonderful stuff to explore there. You can find all of the episodes and so much more on the Society for Nautical Research's website at snr.org.uk. Please also check out the Mariner's Mirror podcast's YouTube page where there's some wonderful innovative material bringing the maritime past to your eyes in ways you will have never seen before. Most recently, in our use of artificial intelligence and digital artistry to bring ships' figureheads to life. There's a crazy sentence for you. Best of all, please join the society. It doesn't cost very much and the money you donate will help support this podcast. It will help publish the Mariner's Mirror quarterly journal it will help preserve our maritime heritage and best of all if you are a member you get to apply to come to our annual dinner on the gun deck of Nelson's HMS Victory. Now there's an iconic ship for you and it's something you will never ever forget.